3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning everybody and welcome to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. I hope everyone had a great weekend and yeah, and ready for the week ahead. It was very cold over the weekend. I don't know how everyone else felt, but... Whew. I'm well adjusted, I feel like. I feel like the cold is now a part of me, which is nice. I'm Jackson. Good morning. Yeah, it's been long enough. Like and this winter, <laughs> that is, in terms of it becoming a part of you. <laughs> yes, it feels like it's gone for long enough. We're also joined by Layla this morning. Good morning, Layla. Yeah, hello. Good morning. Hey. Welcome to the team. Ah, thank you. Thank you. First official, huh? Well, you were here last week, and that was really nice, but I don't feel like we welcomed you officially. No, thank no. you. Yeah. Well, we hope everyone, um, yeah, it does enjoy the show that's coming up. We've got a great show again um, today. Yeah. We first up, who are we speaking to, Jackson? Uh, we're talking to a woman called Denise Travell. She's a media and communications expert with 35 years' experience in the advertising industry, and she's going to be talking about the work of Sleeping Giants Oz. I don't know whether you've been following them online at all, but if you haven't, you're going to learn about what they do and why it's been pretty effective recently. Um, and after that, we're going to be talking to Greens Senator Andrew Bartlett, who is based in Brisbane, and so we're going to talk to him about uh, Fraser Anning's um, speech in Parliament, and I guess a little bit about the rise of the far right um, you know, throughout Australia, and we'll, I'm sure we'll touch on many other issues with him. And then we've got Over the Wall coming up after that. Mm-hmm. And then we've got an interview, Layla, with... Titan Devereon. Yep. So he's coming in studio, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, he was one of, I think, maybe six um, young people that were in the South Sudanese Australians Talk Police Politics and the Media and that um, kind of went viral on Vice. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I really tease up with the Fraser Anning kind of situation, so mm. I'm really interested to get his perspective on everything from that point. And we'll be playing some of his tracks too because he's um, pretty prolific artist at that. Mm. So it's a good theme running through here because uh, Sleeping Giants Oz have been tackling the presentation of uh, hate speech in the mainstream media as well and kind of uh, empowering everyday citizens to call out uh, brands that are supporting hate speech through, uh, you know, well-known outlets like Sky News and News Limited and really anyone who gives a platform to these uh, far-right vast majority of people spreading hate speech well, from the far right. It's true. So. It is a, a well-connected show, and um, we hope everyone enjoys the show. Um, but let's, let's right now, let's go into alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty, say you're gonna have to get right down to the real name. 
As always, I guess. Mm. I think as the, you know, election sort of, um, you know, starts to heat up, gets closer to the election, that, uh, you know, gets more and more kind of uh, meaty sort of subjects, I guess. Um, so, what what did you what did you both want to bring this morning? I'm Layla? absolutely terrified by like this kind of draconian like mass law reform that Dutton's been putting through since being head of uh, Home Affairs. It's generally it's genuinely out of like an Orwellian nightmare. Like the, the everybody kind of uses 1984 as a metaphor, but it's becoming more and more and more real mm. as the years go on. What is a minister for home affairs and why do we need one? Um, it's, it's interesting the way they create these kind of super departments. Um, there's actually a trend, not just in Australia, but around the world. They've created one in Japan. There's been one in China for quite a while. There's one in the US, you know, the Department of uh, Homeland Security, where they bring together all these different security services. And they often sit kind of outside the due process as well. They have all these, um, you know, special powers and... Uh, particularly around security and safety and apparently what is now of interest to this, you know, huge nebulous uh, department is, you know, our photos on Facebook and our uh, comments on Twitter. Uh, by all accounts, it's going to be, these companies are going to be forced to, to hand over information to the government. Yeah, exactly right. On Ex- the regs. Yeah, yeah. And uh, um, th- there's this new, like, kind of facial recognition software that's being developed within Home Affairs so they can match CCTV camera footage with your Facebook photos. So, like, this is, uh, as with everything that's coming through in this kind of Home Affairs um, package, it's it's a huge blow to any kind of political dissidence or, like, protest and ability for any of us to be able to continue speaking out the way that we do. Like, for me, they've... They're going on like um like some kind of mass prepping um spree. It's like it, it's a it's very survivalist in the sense that like we know that things are going to be going wrong in the next kind of few years, so we better get these through now so that we can have like all of these systems in place to crush any kind of possible like uprising or revolutionary potential. Well, uh, Juice Media put out a great clip, um, one of their honest government ads, mm, talking wonderful. about the um, new home affairs portfolio and, and the kind of issues around that. So I suggest people, um, you know, go through YouTube or Facebook to check out their ad. But I, I agree, it is, it is concerning. And I think one of the points that's made in that video as well is that because, because of the all-encompassing kind of nature of the all of the groups that are in that one um, group that, you know, something happens with one of those, such as uh, things that are happening on Mattis Island or Nauru and they need to be investigated. 
they're going to be investigating themselves, which is a bit of a problem, I would say, for, um, you know, trying to seek justice or truth and things like that. So it is it is creating uh, a monolith of, of kind of um, power and things, you know, controlled by a person that I would like to talk about, um, Peter Dutton, as well. Mm. What would you like to say about Peter Dutton? I'm glad you asked. Well... <laughs> Uh, as probably, you know, listeners have seen over the last couple of days that the, you know, the news out is that he's going to be launching a challenge to Malcolm Turnbull to be the Liberal Party leader. Whether that is true or not, I think that what is certainly happening is he's trying to, the right of the Liberal Party are trying to remove some of the more um, progressive kind of uh, policies that Turnbull is, you know, and his kind of part of the Liberal Party have tried to get through and bring in a much more right-wing agenda. And that what what we've seen so far is the, you know, energy bill. Mm. And, he, you know, he's threatened to already um, leave the front bench so that they can cross the floor. Tony Abbott has said that he will cross the floor against that bill. And we know the Liberal Party only have the majority by one vote, so that would mean that they need to get Greens or Labor Party support. Mm. Uh, I think that if Peter Dutton was to be successful, and I'm not sure if this is actually a true challenge or if you know, his people have just leaked the information in order to, as I say, get some of these kind of policies through, that would be a dark day indeed with Peter Dutton as Prime Minister. I like just just, just contemplating so, this. I'm in so much pain. Like I, I like over the weekend, I got really emotionally affected because obviously I'm I'm consuming a lot more media, like being in this kind of position, and it's like just reminded me why people switch off because it hurts. It freaking hurts to know that we can't e- we sign treaty after treaty and we're not actually doing anything and we're allowing like th- these kind of representatives per se to like completely take control of our future. And if Peter Dutton does become Prime Minister, like, oh, it makes me feel sick just even contemplating it because, like, oh, the divisiveness, the corrupt kind of, like, cruelty of that individual, not even that individual, that our entire political system, it just, yeah, it it makes everybody feel a little bit helpless and hopeless. And Mm -hmm. along with these kind of crushing of political dissident kind of um, reforms a fear for the future. Yeah, he's a pretty terrifying individual. It doesn't help that he looks a lot like Voldemort from Harry Potter, which I'm, I'm sure everyone has noticed, and it's a, it's a surface thing, but I think it speaks to a deep truth about the man himself. Well, yes. I mean, not to say about the policies itself, and while we certainly, you know, do speak out about what the government's doing now, and you know, sort of rightly scoffed at the policies of Malcolm Turnbull. I think to see the right wing of the Liberal Party will be a, a drastic change, I think, from even that. So, yeah, it is interesting. I, I mean, I would think that surely that there's been some talk this morning that they're going to do some sort of curability deal, but I really doubt that that is... I think that's not going to happen. Um, but I, I would say... I surely would think that if Dutton became Prime Minister before the election, that they would surely lose the election, because he's very unpopular. That is the one 
and I, I, lo- I feel weird even using this phrase, but it's the one silver lining to the cloud that is Dutton, is that it would galvanise a whole lot of uh, the middle ground against this party. I mean, I saw a lot of interesting interviews over the weekend done with farmers, uh, you know, who prop up this national coalition between the nationals and the, and the liberals about the total lack of willingness for members of the right of that coalition to discuss climate change and the impact it's having in regional New South Wales, in regional Victoria, you know, that incendiary drought that people are experiencing and this, you know, horse trading and just cynical approach, you know, that they are aware, you know, this is from the mouths of country people, how aware that this party is tied to big coal and its interests, you know, and we've seen this in, in the commentary around uh, the National Energy Guarantee, which Turnbull has now, you know, caved and said, there will be no set targets, you know, to, to meet the, the Paris Climate Accords. And you just... I remember, actually, I was actually uh, doing some work at the time for the ACTU when Turnbull took over from Abbott, and there was actually a sense of, of dread in that room that I was wor- 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 working in because, you know, Turnbull had this, you know, softly, softly progressive appeal to a certain uh, milk toast lefty, you know, because he was, you know, supposedly supportive of um, LGBTI rights, he was supposedly supportive of a discussion on climate change, he was supposedly open to, I don't know, a whole range of reforms, you know, we could only but dream where Malcolm would take us. But unfortunately, his whole government has been like, you know, a terrible cave-in, a cave-in I'm glad didn't happen in Thailand and happened here, but a terrible cave-in to the right of his party. Well, just like when Voldemort did resurface, it gave the opportunity for those to gather and unite and to finally defeat Voldemort. We all need to summon our Patronuses for you Harry Potter fans out there and send them gallivanting across the sky towards Dutton. And the, you know, the resistance that was formed as well to, to, um, you know, in Harry Potter to mount a a counterattack to organise. Let's get out there and find those Horcruxes. This okay. has gone on too long. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so I think that, um, you know, we, we've mentioned a few times about the kind of coming federal election, and obviously we have a state election coming up this year in November. So mm. we'll continue to bring news around those those issues, and we'll, yeah, be watching and reading with intent. I'm just going to play a couple of announcements now, and then we'll come back with our first interview of the day. That's right, this is Brother West from the American Empire trying to keep alive the legacy of John Coltrane, Curtis Mayfield, Nina Simone, and I am so glad you are listening to 3CR, because 3CR is a force for good. It's telling the truth and allows you both to laugh, not at, but with others. Oh, what a grand radio station it is. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30 
$2. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. CCR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, 855am on your radio dial, or perhaps you're listening to a podcast in the future at 3cr.org.au. You can download them. So in the last week, we've seen some strong comments and criticism of Sky News Australia in particular, choosing to give a platform to self-proclaimed neo-Nazis such as Blair Cottrell. A part of this criticism has been driven on Twitter uh, by a Twitter-based organisation called Sleeping Giants Oz. Now, you might have heard of them or seen their work online, but uh, I'm joined now to unpack their work by a woman named Denise Travell, who's a media consultant with over 35 years' experience in advertising and media buying, and she's also the founder of Mediascope and a regular commentator on the Australian media landscape. Good morning, Denise. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So, Denise, could we start? Could you give us a little overview of what Sleeping Giants Oz is and what they do? Of course. Sleeping Giants Oz is termed as an advertising activist movement. They first started in the US uh, to coincide with Trump's election. Uh, they now have uh, affiliates in about 14 countries throughout the world and they launched in Australia last August. The role that Sleeping Giants plays is to really advise advertisers of the content that they're aligned to. So in the US, they particularly focus on Breitbart, which of course is that alt-right extremist website which Steve Bannon was involved in. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they take a screenshot of the advertising aligned to the content, which is based on hate speech. Usually um, hate speech comes under a few banners. It's usually targeted towards minorities or people within our community under perhaps religion, race, sex, um, and so on. They take a screenshot of the advertising around the hate speech type content and then they tweet the advertiser advising them of the ads that they're, sorry, of the content that their ad is aligned to. So this is, for instance, a company like Qantas has been targeted recently, considering some of the commentary that's appeared on Sky News, particularly commentary that is racist, that is divisive, you know, stirring uh, sentiments within the community, not dissimilar to statements made by Fraser Anning in Parliament the other week, but more in the mainstream media. So can you be clear on what Sleeping Giants Oz classifies as hate speech? Hate speech is quite a recognised term around the world. Hate speech really recognises speech which incites violence or crime. It also can be selectively biased speech, which is again targeted toward groups within our community. So Sleeping Giants really concentrates on content again, which falls under that hate speech umbrella, but it really targets... um, 
speech which is either um, racially, which vilifies on <clears throat> in terms of race, sexual preference, um, gender, mm. also things like welfare recipients. Mm. So how does publicising companies or that support hate speech through their advertising dollars, how does that empower consumers? I think it empowers consumers. I mean, first of all, it's consumers are also audiences and consumers. So it empowers consumers by allowing them to let businesses that they may be dealing with know of, the, of their expectations in regard to the content that they're supporting. Um, it empowers them to say, look, I'm going to make purchase decisions based on the way that you're behaving in the community, based on the media that you're choosing to align your advertising to, uh, based on your corporate responsibility mm. and your brand values. So there was a suggestion, um, you know, stemming from Sleeping Giants last week that, or the week before that Qantas should remove Sky News from their transit lounge screens. And it, this really sent some conservative commentators into meltdown last week. Uh, Caroline Marcus in News Limited Papers and Mark Ritson in the Australian Business Review, they suggested that Sleeping Giants odds were trammeling free speech. I'm always curious about this outcry from conservative commentators. What exactly are these commentators so afraid they will not be able to say if people call them out for hate speech? Look, I think that's a really good point, and I think we saw a similar kind of debate during the 18C debate. Of course, 18C, um, something regularly mentioned, no one mentioned 18D as part of that ongoing discussion. Um, Sleeping Giants Oz certainly received a lot of media mention, um, both within the trade media, so the advertising trade media, but beyond that. They also, as an example, were recognised in the Hollywood Reporter of all things. So they are, they are attracting significant amount of media attention for the work that they're doing and the success that they're having here. Mm. Uh, media Watch, of course, would be another one. Conservative commentators, I think, um, sort of raised some issues. Um, some of it, of course, was quite fact-free, which I think was where some concerns came in. Um, but I do think it's interesting that they're really sort of sitting up and taking notice. Mm. Um, of course, you know, the line between free speech and hate speech is often one that they like to raise. Um, and I think Sleeping Giants Oz and Sleeping Giants around the world are fairly certain of where that line generally falls. Yeah, it's certainly making an impact. I mean, we had Jacinta Allen, the Transport Minister here in Victoria, make a call to remove Sky News from train stations, underground train stations here, and put on, you know, the ABC, which seemed like a wonderful transition to me. But... Uh, I'm also interested in the comments that Mark Ritson made accusing sleeping giants. And this is, this is often a regular ac accusation from the conservative press as well, that, that somehow people are paid activists, um, that, that these people are employed to kind of, you know, call these things out. Uh, it seems to me looking online that it's a lot of individuals who join in the movement. You know, they, they uh, doctor graphics for major brands, you know, turning Subway into Subpar or, you know, changing a Coca-Cola brand to remind everyone that they're currently, you know, supporting racism and that that's something that they enjoy. Uh, yeah, can you respond to Ritson's accusation that everyone involved with Sleeping Giants Odd is, is a paid activist? Yes, that certainly surprised many of the Sleeping Giants Oz followers on Twitter, to say the least. Um, they are and no one associated with Sleeping Giants worldwide is paid. 
Um, they are absolutely, it's all volunteer. They keep themselves anonymous uh, for various reasons. But this is really a grassroots, people-powered movement. No one is paid as part of this. Um, everyone involved in Sleeping Giants, whether it be the people actually running the accounts in the various countries around the world, or indeed the growing, the fast-growing community of giants who are following them, who are increasingly getting in touch with advertisers and brands, no one is paid. This is very much a grassroots, people-powered movement. It's an interesting space for you, Denise, as well. As a media buying expert and someone who advises companies on where to place their ads, there must be a tension here where, you know, so much of, you know, and I don't want to sound catastrophic, but so much of the mainstream media does tread the line of dog whistling and there's this, you know, particularly in an election year, there's this, there appears to be this symbiotic relationship between the media and politicians and police around race baiting and dog whistling. And I just wonder, you know, how did you come to be a supporter of this movement and how does it intersect with the work you do selling advertising space? I first became aware of this kind of initiative uh, through an organisation actually in the UK that does something very similar to Sleeping Giants. In the UK they have Stop Funding Hate. Stop Funding Hate actually advises advertisers around three or four of the more divisive British um, red tops. Uh, and they've had a lot of success. Sleeping Giants is kind of a, a, a friendly cousin uh, to stop funding hate. They certainly do keep in touch with each other, as far as I'm aware. Uh, but I first came across Sleeping Giants um, around the time that I suppose hate speech really came onto my radar. Uh, I do think it's obviously been around for some time, but it does seem to have really increased perhaps in the last two or, two or so years. And I do think that that does have a lot to do with the current political environment we're in, where perhaps a politician like Trump has really sort of empowered some of this kind of content. I think it's also really interesting to note that it comes at a time where many media organisations around the world are in disruption and really quite challenged in terms of their business models. Mm. They seem to be going to the fringes to find audience. I, both polit politicians and media seem to be going to the fringes to find their audiences. Yeah, and talking about fringes, I wonder what role Sleeping Giants in the US and here has played in uh, getting... Notorious truth bender and conspiracy theorist Alex Jones are uh, deplatformed from a number of social media outlets over the last week. You know, Alex Jones's notorious info wars has been broadcasting absolute garbage for years. And uh, was SJ involved in in the work to to kind of oust him from a number of his platforms? They certainly have been very vocal. Uh, Sleeping Giants, of course, originally started with advertisers on Breitbart and they have been extremely successful in advising advertisers of that of that alignment on Breitbart mm. with about 4,000 advertisers coming off. They were also or played a role uh, in getting uh, Bill O'Reilly off Fox and Friends and yes, now they seem to have shifted their focus to uh, InfoWars and asking some of the platforms that host his content to really remove that content 
to remove that kind of content and they've been having some success. Again, interesting, it's all people-powered movement. It's people advising these platforms that this kind of content is unacceptable mm. in a, and not wanted in a civilised society. So, yeah, I guess that brings us around to what's happening here in Australia at the moment. We just opened the show talking a little bit about the fact that Peter Dutton has made some, to my mind, really problematic comments over his career. I think about the comments about <clears throat> taking uh, certain refugees from South Africa while leaving others locked up to rot. You know, what, what does success uh, for Sleeping Giants Oz look like here in Australia? What are some of the aims of the organisation over the next, over this really important next 12 months as we move into elections? Well, I think it's interesting to note that Sleeping Giants Oz, like its, uh, like its sort of big brother, so to speak, in the US, really did start with advising Australian advertisers on Breitbart. Um, and they had a lot of success with that. But as time moved on, they increasingly started to shift their focus to hate speech type content within our mainstream media. Uh, the aim of Sleeping Giants Oz here is certainly just to change, is to attempt to change the, uh, the, the discourse and the discussion uh, within our mainstream media. They're certainly not saying that some of these very important issues don't need debate and don't need public discussion. But sometimes this discussion on some media owners, of course, turns to division and turns, and, and turns to inflamed type content that very much cherry picks or is selectively biased against one particular topic. And of course, it harms people within those communities in quite profound ways. And some people, as an example, within the South Sudanese community have been very vocal and very upfront about the damaging impacts this kind of media commentary has on their communities. Well, thanks heaps for joining us this morning, Denise, and having a chat about uh, Sleeping Giants Oz and a chat about the media industry more broadly. And, um, yeah, enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you very much. All the best. And please follow Sleeping Giants Oz, Sleeping Giants Oz on Twitter. Yeah, I encourage all of our listeners to do that. There is some great content being made, and they do alert you uh, to situations where this type of uh, comment is going to air as well, which is really valuable. We get to find out which outlets are putting this news out there. So you're tuned into exactly. 3CR. Cheers. Thanks, Denise. You're tuned Thank into. You. Bye. Bye. You're tuned into 3CR Monday Breakfast. And that was Julia Jacqueline with Same Airport, Different Man. Um, a lovely track for a Monday morning, I think. Um, and you are listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. And right now we're lucky to have on the line Senator Andrew Bartlett from the Greens. And we wanted to talk to Andrew, um, you know, we'll talk broadly about some of the issues happening in politics at the moment. But Andrew's been uh, particularly strong in um, his condemnation of Fraser Anning's speech in Parliament and, you know, spoken out against that. And I think... Uh, you know, his track record and the Greens um, are in a great position to actually speak out against that. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Andrew. Yeah, not a problem. So I guess, um, you know, we, we've we heard this kind of speech, I guess, in a similar way before uh, by Pauline Hanson. But in um, but you, you were quoted as saying that, you know, you think that um, Fraser Anning has sort of out one nation, one nation itself. And we saw Pauline Hanson herself kind of, condemn the speech in a weird sort of irony but 
what you know what do you i guess for the listeners who perhaps didn't hear your um your take on it how is it to kind of share space with um these kind of leaders on a daily basis uh well i'm sharing space with them and then when i'm stuck in the senate chamber or the, and even then you don't actually have to uh spend all day with them but it's always awful to, to be uh hearing that sort of thing up front but look, I, I think there's a, a couple of things need to be said firstly I mean, as you said it was clearly premeditated and uh, even though it was this guy's first speech in in a formal sense, he's actually been there for nine months. And he's made a bunch of other speeches um, and basically been pretty much invisible. Uh, and it's only because he really ramped up the rhetoric. But some of his other things he said, it's fairly typical boilerplate, racist, anti-Muslim, uh, anti-gay, uh, anti-First Nations uh, comments. It's just that people are either not noticed or, or chose to ignore him. But... Uh, um, you know, clearly tried to and succeeded in stepping it up another notch, um, and that's you know it's, it is disgusting. It doesn't need to be called out, and it doesn't need to be pushed back against. But I, I think uh, you know, alongside that, as many, many, many people have said, uh, there's been uh, a wide range of uh, ever more discriminatory and, and bigoted comments from a whole lot of uh, people in all sorts of leadership positions in the community, including, of course, uh, senior coalition figures. Uh, in recent years, so uh, in that sense, uh, this person who really doesn't have a great deal of influence and is extremely unlikely to be re-elected, uh, it's less worrying than having to, to see you know, your, your government and people, senior figures in your government, uh, peddling this sort of stuff and actually putting it into practice um, on, a, on a regular basis. It's um, far more concerning and, and uh, you know, far more confronting to have to deal with, but far more confronting, of course, for those people in our community who are directly targeted by it and have to face it and deal with it um, every day of their lives. Senator Bartlett Jackson here, just before we move on to some of those more prominent members of the coalition, if, if you're saying that Senator Anning had made some other uh, speeches was largely ignored and that this was a way for him to you know, gain a little bit of much desired attention for himself, is it at all possible that he did not uh, premeditate and understand the weighting of the phrase final solution? Is that, is that believable for a man of his generation to not understand the context of that phrase? No, I don't believe so, no. I mean, it's, you know, as close to certain as you could be that that, that was deliberate. I mean, out of all the speeches you do where you script it out beforehand and check what you're going to say, it's that one that's the so-called first speech where, you know, people are not just going to listen at the time, but, you know, whenever anyone goes back to see what somebody's about, mm. um, they always go back and look at their so-called first speech. And so I, I'm... As certain as you can be about these things, it was it was deliberate. You've been in Parliament with Pauline Hanson, I think, before, and the rise of One Nation, and kind of seeing that that up close. How, how does this, you know, I think at the moment, I guess, you know, I think a lot of the perhaps public have taken Bob Catter's, you know, rise and in Parliament with a little bit of jest. You know, we we mocked his crocodile speech and mm. the way he kind of, you know, he really attacks the media when you when he talks to them but the, you know it's really the rise of some of these kind of fringe parties are pushing a right-wing agenda in much the same way that Hansen was able to get the Howard government to support a lot of policies that One Nation first put up how, how are you kind of seeing that paradigm at the moment 
Yeah, look, I mean, Bob Catter himself, just briefly, is, is a bit of a strange one, because whilst he's always been uh, eccentric, uh, I think as a Queenslander, I'd say most people felt that, you know, whilst your uh, views of the many people would not be too keen on, he was generally seen as, as um, less extreme than than Pauline Hanson. Um, but sort of overnight, he's, he's flipped across on the other side of things, and you know whether that's to do with his health or whether that's to do with the deliberate position of political positioning. Because let's not forget, there's you know just in Queensland at the next federal election, and uh, you know and these people are battling for the same sort of space, and uh, unfortunately, uh, seeing who can be the most outrageous, the most abusive, the most divisive uh, is. Uh, one tactic uh, to try and get political positioning and media attention. Uh, you know, that's distasteful and disgusting, but it's something that politicians have been doing for a long time, not just the smaller parties. And, of course, it's not just rhetoric. It has uh, flow-on real-life consequences for many people in our communities. Uh, so, it's, it's, uh, you know, this stuff kills, as we know. Um, it's not just some sort of pressure. Uh, but again, I think it's, as you said, it's, it carves out the space that provides a bit of cover for uh, all the other parties that uh, might not use rhetoric that's quite as bad. But um, although, you know, as, as folks in Melbourne would know with Peter Dutton and, and then Malcolm Turnbull and Tony Abbott and others, there's been, you know, a full-on uh, mm. abusive assault on uh, uh, people from African backgrounds, specifically uh, in Melbourne in recent times, of course, and that has very direct immediate consequences on those people and those communities. So uh, it's not just a Queensland thing and it's not just a minor party thing. I think while, you know, a, a lot of people on all sides of politics have condemned Anning's speech, do you think it's hypocritical of the Labor and Liberal politicians in particular, as you know, you mentioned the major parties there, to condemn the speech while also supporting, you know, Nauru and Manus Island and the kind of policies that both those parties have for asylum seekers? Oh, of course it is. It's deeply hypocritical and it's um, a whole bunch of adjectives on top of that. But uh, it's a reminder that, I mean, you know, obviously it's good if you parliament on the record saying they, they condemn racism and, and we condemn... Uh, discriminatory, racially discriminatory, uh, migration policies. That's, that's good. And it's, you know, there were some good speeches, including from some, uh, Lisa Gachua, the South Australian, uh, liberal senator uh, from the Kenyan background was the best speech I've seen her give since she was there, speaking of her personal experience as a black woman in this country. Um, so that, you know, that's, that's valuable, but, you know, it's a real reminder that, that, you know, words are easy and words are cheap, as the phrase goes. And, it's action that counts, and you know, the fact is we've got a discriminatory immigration uh, regime. Uh, people rightly point to the, the torture camps on Manus Island and Nauru, but mm. even the wider migration uh, regime has been discriminatory on the basis of race uh, for a long period of time, not as blatantly as the white Australia policy, but it's, it's easier to get a visa to come here from some countries and other countries, so this, it's been that way for a long time. It, it blatantly discriminates against people with disabilities. Um, and, of course, we had Peter Dutton and others in recent times before literally talking about reintroduction tests. So uh, just because you don't call it the white Australia policy or you're, you're a bit more polite with your words doesn't mean you're not doing exactly the same thing. 
and uh, that to me is the is the real problem with this alongside you know the other part of uh, what has always been the case with politicians all around the world when they they seek to divide communities and demonize uh, minority groups is that it's uh, it used as, as cover or a distraction for for all the other things that uh, the political class are doing to the general community, whether it's rising in economic inequality or trashing the planet or uh, continuing to punish the poor whilst they give tax breaks to the big corporations. Uh, meanwhile, everybody's over talking about this stuff. So I think that's the other thing we've always got to keep in mind. Senator, I think you're drawing a really good uh, parallel there between the outrage over one speech and, you know, perhaps the ignorance in some quarters or the ignoring of the policies that are continuing to harm marginalised groups in the community, continuing to target those that are already vulnerable. To your mind, which policies are you know, the most urgent that we should be focusing on and demanding that the government reevaluate and reassess? I mean, if you talk about stopping absolutely extreme suffering right now, uh, then you know, closing the death camps on Daru and Manus Island getting people off there and, and getting them somewhere secure and safe is obviously very, very urgent because people are dying right now. Um, but, uh, you know, more, more widely beyond that, uh, if you want to talk specifically about the, the Migration Act, then there's a whole range of things there, which are, um, you know, that we've seen a lot of more growing number of stories in recent times about the, uh, exposing the massive exploitation of um Migrant workers, workers of migrant backgrounds in our community who are much more readily able to be uh, underpaid. They're not the only people that are suffering from wage theft, of course, but they're much more easily able to be targeted. There's uh, people in our community uh, who literally come under the definition of slaves. Um, and uh, there's, there's some horrendous exploitation in our um, country as well at the moment that people just aren't aware of. And uh, that actually goes across to our you know, our workplace laws as much as it does our migration laws. It's not embedded in our migration laws to enable these people to be exploited. It's just because um, our migration laws make them vulnerable that uh, uh, unscrupulous people exploit them more readily. Uh, so, and, and, you know, that's that's one area. And uh, I guess if you're looking at stuff in the in the theme of uh, the, the racism component of the debate, but uh, again, I think we need to make sure we don't get so focused on that that we ignore that the structural racism that's embedded in, in our society and that's you know the benefit of having these debates I think and, and more importantly hearing uh, not so much from people like me but from uh, people of colour from First Nations people who can continue to tell us what their lived reality is like um, in having to deal with uh, structural racism every day and you know to me that was some of the more powerful and valuable speeches um, from the debate in Parliament last week it wasn't so much the uh, the words from the, the leaders, but from uh, uh, not just Lucy Gushue, who I mentioned, but perhaps Anne Alley and others who who talk about um, that this is a daily experience with them. It's not just you know one awful speech making people upset. It's every day having to deal with um, structural racism and embedded discrimination, and you know that's always going to be there to some degree, but the. It, the only way it reduces is if we call it out, if we describe it, if we become aware of it. Those of us, uh, you know, like myself, who aren't people of colour, who are privileged life, you, you, it's invisible to you until someone points it out to you. Um, and that's that's where it's valuable, and that's why you know the, the one positive, if you like, out of this sort of stuff is a chance to hear from uh, people that, that experience this every day and, and can tell us in what ways and how it manifests 
and what we can do to change. Some of it is changing laws, but a lot of it is changing attitudes and awareness. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think to, that's a really important point to make. I just wanted to move on to something, I guess, a bit of a bigger picture thing around, you know, an issue that really creates a lot of the uh, refugees, asylum seekers as well. And, you know, something over the last few years the government has really tried to push forward into being, you know, a much bigger player in the world sphere around militarisation and, you know, the, we heard the government talk a few months ago about wanting to become one of the top ten arms uh, manufacturers, arms dealers in the world, essentially. Um, and, you know, we've seen, you know, yourself have spoken out against the, you know, spoke out against the Iraq war and, um, you know, wanting to introduce the munitions bill in, I think it was 2006. And, you know, how what this kind of drive that Australia is going to be, you know, a weapons player in partnerships with universities, you know, really trying to ramp up for a really small nation to have this really big play in uh, the world in stage of, of war. You know, how, how do we, how do we uh, pose opposition to that? And, and, you know, what can we do to try to negate that kind of uh, drive? Uh, we've got to... It's a challenging one because obviously there's big corporations with big money there trying to... Uh, really pushing this agenda. Um, but uh, we've got to, I think, firstly raise community awareness out of it because I feel like a lot of people still don't really know that. It does sort of get lost in all the other um, foreign fury of um, political discussion that this this push to be a, a, a much bigger global arms trader, as, as you've mentioned, and uh, you know, building a, a community movement around that, and, um, and alongside that is uh, you know, to get people on board for why this is, is appalling, is to, to uh, uh, draw more attention to what the consequences of that are. I mean, it's a, it's a horrendous, um, literal vicious circle um, of the, the wars that we're facilitating. We're facilitating already. I mean, the, the, the horrendous situation in Yemen, which gets very little attention um, that Australia is directly linked into uh, through our support for Saudi Arabia, um, but also, of course, our support for um, and, and assistance with wars elsewhere, which, of course, create the refugees that we then uh, spend our time debating about what to do about over here. Um, but I think just more and more attention to the the direct connection, and, and you know, alongside that is, is our unavoidable connection uh, through our defence facilities, and particularly Pine Gap, already uh, with you know the, the widespread drone bombing of the the USA that couldn't happen, uh, at least in some parts of the world, without uh, Australian cooperation through the use of Pine Gap and and the like. So you know, we our government is already making the world a lot less safe, and I think just continually trying to find ways to make people realise this is actually making ourselves more unsafe as well as, of course, creating horrendous death and dis- destruction and destabilisation in other parts of the world and costing an extraordinary amount of money. I mean, the, the amount of money uh, that's spent on this, if that was actually invested in building community and building infrastructure, whether it's overseas or whether it's here, uh, in, in a far more, um, even just economically positive way, let alone, of course, talking about the human cost or the environmental costs, there's... Um, even the environmental cost of um, these things, you know, the carbon emissions of these death machines, it's not the only reason not to do it, but it's just an extra reason why it's so insane. There's, there's so many aspects of those stories that people start hearing about, and I think all of us, and talk about all of us in Parliament as well, uh, again, perhaps need to spend more time trying to do all we can to, to bring out this 
information and bring out these facts uh, rather than perhaps get distracted by all the little sideshows that happen inside the parliamentary bubble. Well, um, I guess just before we wrap up, I know that, um, you know, there's, I think there was some talk that you're perhaps going to be leaving the Senate um, at the end of the year. Is that, is that still? End of this week, even. Oh, end of this week. Well, yeah. <laughs> we're lucky to um, to have you on right now. And we know I'll... You can still talk to me afterwards. That's right. Well, we'd love to. And, you know, as a fellow um, broadcaster on 4 Z, will you still be um, on the air and there? What are your plans for the future? Um, yeah, look, I'm... I'm um I've actually stayed on the air, although on Triple Z's digital channels, they're digital, which is pretty um, sort of not widely listened to. So I've just done that just to keep my hand in with you know, the local music scene in Brisbane mostly, and I'm still involved on the, the committee, the board there at Triple Z as well. Um, I obviously try and keep those roles completely separate from any partisan political stuff, but look, I'm, I'm still involved. It's a great organisation, and for any of your listeners that like supporting community radio interstate, it's Triple Z Radiothon as we speak this week, so um, it's the, the week of the year to, to support a fellow community radio station, and uh, I will say, um, as with, with your station and others and community radio in general, um, as we see the decline of commercial media in any meaningful sense of the word being of any value, terms of information, the role of community radio and community media to get these stories out there like the things we've just been talking about, like the impact of um, expanding weapons trading is, I think, going to be more and more crucial in the future. So um, uh, having said that, I'm stepping out of the Senate not just to go and do stuff in community radio. I'm stepping out of the Senate to try and win a House of Representatives seat in Brisbane, running for the seat of Brisbane, which is a Liberal seat at the moment. Because, uh, if we want to get a transformational change in our parliamentary situations, um I feel parties like the Greens have got to start winning lower house seats. The Senate's obviously crucial, but uh, until we can win more lower house seats, um, we're really not going to be able to turn this stuff around because, as, as we've been making clear, we've been having these debates for a long time. Pauline mm. Hanson's been around a long time. And, you know, when I came back in the Senate last year, after 10 years away, everything that was bad about it before is far, far worse. So uh, we need some rapid transformation, and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing in terms of stepping out of the Senate to, to focus all I can on trying to win a uh, House of Reps seat. Well, it's been great to talk to you uh, today, and we would love to chat to you in the future. So um, good luck with your, with your um, run for the, for the election, and we'll, um, for the Brisbane listeners, I'll be able to hear you on the air. Yes, excellent. Thank you for that. Cheers. Well, um, up next we have our, our regular program of Over the Wall, and then we'll be back. Samantha Ratnam, Member of State Parliament, Leader of the Victorian Greens. You're the Victorian Greens spokesperson for housing. You've written recently to the Minister of Housing, Martin Folling, requesting a meeting to discuss the future of public and community housing in the state. Could you talk that's about that, please, how that's going? We've been very concerned about what this government is proposing around the public housing renewal program. It's been really worrying, and you don't have that land for public housing in the future. It sells off to private developers with a a promise of a 10% increase in the number of dwellings for social housing on the site. So we've been advocating to the Minister for Housing, Minister Foley, and 
discussion that been around a 10% increase in public housing stock yeah. due to this renewal program that would cause much higher density residential dwellings on smaller amounts of land? That's right. How many people can actually live in those public housing dwellings could be reduced because you could actually reduce the number of bedrooms. So, for example, at the Walker Estate in Northcote, they have a number of three-bedroom dwellings, but that's going down to a handful of three-bedroom dwellings and instead a lot more one- and two-bedroom dwellings. And so actually the number of people you can fit in could be reduced, although there's a 10% increase in the number of dwellings. So, you know, there's over 37,000 applications on the public housing waiting list. And, you know, we're getting a really minimal increase through this program. And we're losing all that land to private development, very intense private development. And the question is, when we've got such a housing crisis at the moment and we've got 37,000 applications... You know, why are we giving away that land when we should be building more public housing? The rebuilding of public housing tends to focus on uh, one-room properties. And so people in multiple dwelling properties, those properties aren't being replaced and people are often having to look at options uh, further out. It's been a familiar story now for some years. What that means is an increase in the number of of one-bedroom unit dwellings, but an actual decrease in the amount of people physically able to live in the area because they're not three-bedroom? Exactly. The government has cited that there's more demand for one- and two-bedrooms, and we absolutely see that. You have to provide a diversity of dwellings. But we've done uh, some door knocking, gone and talked to residents on the current public housing estates, and a lot of the bigger families who actually need three bedrooms or more are the ones still waiting for relocation and often are being asked to move quite far away. So they're really disconnected from their local neighbourhoods, places that we go to, we build trust and rapport and relationships, GP that they've gone to, like the local school that your kids go to, you've got to move schools, move all your social connections, your community groups. Public campaigns are concerned about the human rights of people to safe and secure housing and also their cultural rights for safety in terms of being able to have connection with local community, which they've already established. So renewal, this term that keeps being used as as renewal, that might not be a a very positive term to the people that you're meeting on the Markham Estate in these three-bedroom properties, what renewal means to them. That's right. There's been a lot of uncertainty and anxiety about where people are going to move to. They're waiting for the Department of Housing to contact them. It's causing so much upheaval and it's really devastating to see us go backwards in terms of public housing when we've got such a crisis, such huge demand. Now, once we sell this land, we never get it back and we don't see big blocks of land being acquired for more public housing. Instead, we're seeing the only land we have for public housing being sold off. And in terms of things becoming permanent as well, there's been discussion around a bill up for legislation, which would mean a, a change to Residential Tenancies Act superseding the 1997 Residential yeah. Tenancy Act. But there seems to be a, a sluggish approach to getting this bill on the agenda for upcoming sittings of Parliament. Um, have you been part of negotiations for what's in this bill, or can you tell listeners what's occurring around new legislation? Yeah, and I, I think you're referring there to um, some of the rental reforms that were announced. Uh, look, there were a number of things that we have pushed for. There were a number of things. But, you know, we should be thinking also about rental caps, reduce rental caps so that you can actually make rental more affordable for people. Mm. We didn't hear that announced, but we will continue to push for that. 
we have quite large apartment complexes being built. You know, we should really be thinking about inclusionary zones and the government has been really reticent to include a mandatory requirement for affordable housing in those apartment dwellings. So um, there are a number of things that we're pushing for into reform. Some of the things that have been mentioned are plans to release bonds earlier, make it easier for renters to keep pets, blacklist of landlords that don't treat renters well and requiring landlords to give a reason to end the tenancy, prohibiting landlords from inviting higher bids from prospective tenants and allowing renters to make minor modifications to a property. So it yeah. sounds positive. Yeah. yeah, they're all really welcome reform. You know, uh, we're waiting and introducing the parliament so we can get on with and make them happen long overdue. You know, often we're working a lot with uh, new migrants to the country. Um, a lot of new migrants might have to access public or community housing just to be able to establish themselves when they arrive in Australia. And, you know, if you really want to be a compassionate society that values the human rights, you have to fundamentally think about things like housing, about ensuring that we don't lose that social safety net and we just can't afford to go back on those things. And I'm a mental health worker myself and I see uh, a lot of people I, I, I'm working with at the moment with a high percentage of homelessness who've had uh, recent health issues with alcohol and other drugs. Yeah. And are there particular things that you've noticed in your work that are occurring around housing to support people with alcohol and, and other drugs needs? Multiple complex issues that interact that need some extra support. And I can't help thinking that governments don't fund properly, don't invest properly in social services you get really big adversarial consequences. Personally, I'm, I'm very concerned about the punitive measures targeting people mm. with alcohol and, and other drugs and experiences such as we see in social welfare um, penalties being yes, applied yes. in those situations and then that must also compound upon housing if people are receiving punitive measures as well. Terrible stories of compounding the everyday stress and strain that people already in complex situations are facing and you can have policy that blames someone as opposed to actually supporting someone. And, and I think listeners may see you at some public rally campaigns around defence of public housing. Going forward over the next few weeks, there's a vote on the public housing renewal program. We've moved a motion in the parliament to stop the sell-off by blocking the planning commission on six estates that are proposed for this kind of privatised sell-off of the land and that comes to vote on uh, Wednesday and we urge everyone, the more we raise our voice, um, we hope the more other politicians will listen and go back to the drawing board on this. Leader for Victorian Greens, Samantha Ratman, thank you very much for speaking on 3CRs. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for highlighting um, this issue of public housing, which is just so critical. We really appreciate it. And it was a great and big strong rally in Melbourne last Saturday. Thanks again to the Public Housing Defence Network and guest speakers and all the people who attended on that day. The Public Housing Defence Network will continue their campaign. This week they're handing out leaflets in the Melbourne CBD and Brunswick and they're continuing to lobby the Liberals to block the Public Housing Renewal Program legislation. The vote will probably happen next week, so go to the Public Housing Defence Network to find out more stop this sell-off of large blocks of public housing land. That's right, government public housing being sold off to private developers. Public Housing Defence Network on Facebook. Check it out, please.
Good morning, guys. Uh, in studio right now, we have Titan Deberian. Uh, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Um, introduce this track. Or yeah, for sure. You go for it. Good morning, Melvin. It's Titan Deberian. You're listening to the world. So we got Titan in the studio right now, and we're just buzzing, just like full of ideas, very excited. Uh, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Good morning, fam. How are you feeling about the world generally right now? <laughs> um, it's pretty sad, like to be honest, like to be completely honest with you. It's pretty sad where we're going, but I see hope in it as well, because like more people, more and more people are starting to show love rather than hate, and I see that like change, and hopefully that's where we keep on going and don't continue going through like the negatives. But we'll see, I guess. Well, that track we just heard then, it was, um, I guess, kind of reflected that as a really kind of, I guess, a positive outlook on what can be kind of really a negative space. Yeah. Is that, like, how to, what kind of role do you think music can play? In, in I think music is like the soundtrack of society. That's what I feel like. In 60s, 70s, whatever's going on through that time, that's the way the people that don't really have a platform get their message out and are able to speak when sometimes they're not allowed to. So I think that's like the serve, the the point that we serve as musicians to not only try to like go for our dreams and make our goals come true, but also be a voice for all the people that we're in, all our communities and stuff like that. So this track was just me talking about the pain within my community, being a black person, everything that I've gone through with that, but also the beauty in it, also the sadness in it, just the whole picture of it. Yeah. Totally spot on. When you say this, like, hate turning into love, do you see that in our generation specifically? With our generation, is more apparent. It's like it's the older generation that I find has, like, more hate in it. We grow up, like, all together and stuff. Like, with my peers, all of us don't see each other. Like, some there's some people, right, that inherit that from their parents and their grandparents and stuff like that and their families that just have, you know, preconceived notions of people in their, in their families and stuff like that. But most of us have grown up with other races, with other people, all types of people. So we understand that at the end of the day, we're all people. We don't have that type of hate. It's more the older generation that are making all the decisions and stuff like that, that are leading these conversations, that are driving it that way. But I think it's slowly, each generation is becoming more unified as just people. So I think it's slowly changing. So how do you feel, Titan, when you know politicians and leaders come out and make, you know, you know, really inflammatory remarks. How, how does that make you feel? To be honest, at first I'm like really angry about it. But then it turns into disappointment and frustration. Like you can't be angry all the time because then you're not in a clear space. You're not thinking clearly. You can't react properly, right? But to see our prime ministers, our MPs and stuff, people that we elected, right, as a community, and they're supposed to be a representation of what Australia is, to see them being the ones that are leading the conversation towards hate and like making it dangerous for kids, Right mm-hmm. in all these communities, it's disappointing. It's frustrating. It's not. It's not. It doesn't make me angry anymore. It's more like, how are these people, the people in leadership positions that are making decisions for the future, mm-hmm. don't they understand how much damage they're doing to communities? Do they care if they're doing that damage to those communities, or do they just see this as a chess game where they're trying to get into different positions? And if you do, why are you in that position? If that's how you view society and the structure and the people you're supposed to represent, why are you in that position? Mm-hmm. That's not the place we want to go. Mm-hmm. That's how I see it. Great question. 
What are you doing there? If that's if it's just about you. Yeah, why the, are you there? Go somewhere else. Start a business or something. This is all about <laughs> you know, you're not in the right place. That's not the right place for you. If that's how you view the world. Don't make you're making harder for us people that are supposed to trust you and wanting kind people, people that are thinking for everyone and not just a certain part of the community. You're not in the right place if that's what your interests are. Start a business. <laughs> I guess, you know, you talked about the kind of, I guess, getting that kind of emotion and, you know, perhaps put, channeling that into music. Mm-hmm. How does that, is that kind of a, is it a therapeutic kind of process to kind of use that? And you said it kind of goes through a process of anger to, you know, I guess trying to work out what it all means, like you kind of articulated there. How does that come into putting that into music? Well, I made like poetry since I was like a kid. Then I got into music and stuff like that. The best way for me to express myself was always through language, I mm. found. I wasn't good at math. I wasn't good at drawing or art or anything like that. It was always language, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, every time that I'm feeling anything, if it's happiness, anger, sadness, whatever, right, I write it down and I try to formulate that into a piece. I don't always have to share it with people, but mm. it makes me feel better since I was young, since I was just by myself in my room just writing for no one to see, right? So now it's more of a, okay, I found a way that I can meditate on things and I can, like, come to a decision about something or I can get a feeling out, right? But now I can also give that to other people that might be in the same position. That's where music started coming in more. Where it's like, it's not just, it's not, I, I can now share something that made me happy and made me feel at peace with other people and hope that they get the same thing from it. Yeah. That's such an important role here. Like, because here in Australian politics specifically, like, I feel um, it's so void and, like, everybody's so tuned out and nobody's really engaging in mm. any of it. And that's why, like, I felt that vice piece was so powerful because even though you're kind of talking about the same subjects that, like, we've heard, you know, for hundreds of years, the fact that it was coming from Australia and coming from Melbourne was revolutionary. I mean, Melbourne's had a... It's not like Australia doesn't have like a racist past or a racist undertone. Like below, like beneath down under, there is a racist culture here, right? That people want to ignore. I'm saying Melbourne's a beautiful place and there's beautiful people here, but you can't deny that. And for so long, people have tried to like wipe that part of history away like it never happened. We need to also, this conversation, or like, you know, regardless of how negative it is or how damaging it is, right? It's being had now, right? So let's use it to the best of our ability to then now face the issues that we've had and we've been ignoring for all these times. That's how I see it. If, if they're going to start targeting communities and stuff, right, if all the racists are starting to, like, rear their heads out, we can, that's kind of good for us because now we can see, oh, that's how you think. Oh, that's how you think. Oh, you're in that position. You're making these decisions. Okay, we need to change this to work towards a better future for all of us. Even though it's negative, we can get positive out of it. Yeah. Well, um, perhaps maybe we'll go to another one of your tracks. I think this song's called Dreams. Dreams, yeah. You want to tell us a little bit about it before we go to the... Dreams is about, like, um, my mum and dad and stuff like that. Because I came here with my grandma, right? So it's just the story of how they came to be together and stuff like that. And then also how my dad made the decision of leaving and the effects of that on their relationship. That's what it's about.
You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, and that was Titan Debrian. Yep, Titan Debrian. Debrian, that's my bad. <laughs> uh, with his track Dreams, um, which is, yeah, you've got a really um, chill, kind of laid back vibe with um, both the tracks that we heard. You know, yeah. obviously some. Um, Deep and well thought out content. Thank you, man. Yeah, I really enjoyed the the sounds of the tracks. Um, how did you start making music and and um you know um working on your flow, which is yeah. also you got a really unique uh flow. You Thank know, you, like bro. not not borrowing other sounds. It's it's a it's a good sound, man. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I started with poetry. You know? Like um in year three, year four, my English teacher just showed me basic poetry and stuff that you normally use like haiku and all that. I went insane with it. <laughs> I went home. <laughs> I started learning like different types of poetry, started like Googling poets and stuff like that, just reading every single day. I like I used to break into my brother's room when he left and stuff, he used his computer, right? Just to look look at poetry. And then I found a program so I, I was already into rap and stuff like that before that, right? But not as I wasn't a rapper yet. And I found a program when I got um in trouble in class actually and sent to the coordinator's office. Right on the office, there was a poster for a thing called Rap Theory 21 that was in my area. Uh, this program run by the youth, youth um, councils and stuff like that mm-hmm. over there. I went to that program, and I met um, Khalid from the Africs, mm-hmm. and he taught me how to structure my rhymes and into verses and songs and structure just that. I took that, and I went crazy again, and then I started locking myself in my room and just writing and just writing and just writing and just writing, wake up, went to school. Ignoring classes, just writing and writing and writing and writing. And never really shared it until like a year and a half later mm-hmm. when my friends were like, oh, you're actually really good at this. And I'm like, really? Then I started performing in my area, like um, council events and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. then people took notice and started giving me studio time. And then from there on, I moved to Tiny, but I still kept those connections and I still kept on doing music. And a couple of years later, here I am. Mm. Yeah. Did those Fraser gigs... Had your way, yeah. And get the bigger gigs. Yep. <laughs> um, can I ask? Um, you mentioned that you know you read a bunch of poets. What are some of your influences, musicians, and what you've read and stuff? My influences are mainly old school music, like stuff like um, a tribe called Quest. Mm. Erica Badu is a big influence of mine. Lauryn Hill, mm. a lot of um, jazz and stuff like that. Wu Tang, and yeah, I think. Those are my main influences. Mm-hmm. And what are you doing now? Well, now I'm still continuing on. So I've been recording with Murray from the Africs. So I'm like met both of them. I'm working on a few tapes and stuff like that that I plan on releasing in a few years. Yeah, a few years. I don't want like yeah, because I really want to make a classic. I don't want to just come out with a mixtape that you can just go and get on SoundCloud and stuff. I want to make like an international level classic where I can get attention to Australia and stuff like that, and then get my friends up as well. I'm working with like on some of the issues that's happening within my community and stuff like that, and then just giving more of a platform for the kids in my community. I'm trying to get, like, a program for music in my area because I know, like, a lot of my younger, you know, my like, pretty much my little brothers and stuff. They're not really my brothers. They're my brothers, right? I enter music as well and see what we've done and want to do the same thing, and they have talent. So I'm like, why, aren't, why isn't that being, you know, nurtured? Why aren't you... Focusing on that and trying to, because that's positivity right there. If they, mm. if they're friends, they might be doing the wrong thing. Start seeing that they have peers that are doing the right thing, right, and they are doing this music stuff. And it isn't just you know trying to be a lawyer and stuff because they don't want to be a lawyer and stuff like that, right? They have their own dreams. If they see that, then they might want to pursue that as well. And that's going to take away 
a lot of the issues because they're not just in the street anymore and they're not in just these situations and they have a way to express themselves and they don't, they don't feel like no one's listening to them anymore, mm-hmm. right? And it gives them a goal and a passion to drive for. So I'm trying to get that started in my area. Mm-hmm. We're also trying to, like, bring community closer. So we're trying to do more events. In the next, like, few years, we want to do, like, monthly events that aren't just, like, the norm, right, for our community. So we have, like, I want to start doing galleries for all the art kids, right, to just maybe twice a year or something have a big gallery where they can aim to get their art in and stuff mm-hmm. like that so they have a goal and passion for that and then get the community to start doing stuff that we haven't traditionally been doing but we should be because we have these people in our community that are this talented mm-hmm. right they should be getting the support doing more like basketball tournaments like five on five or something maybe like maybe like a five hundred dollar reward for the winner and stuff like that just have a barbecue where you can get more community together and together and then that's how I think that's how you start building bridges to those events with other communities where they start coming and people start interacting and that as soon as you know someone it's hard to judge them right you you now have a point of reference when you see something on the news or when you hear something if you don't have that bridge or that connection to that community you don't have that point of reference, so you just believe what you see immediately. But if you know, oh, I know Abraham, he's always at the gig that those guys throw all the time, and he's really a cool dude, and he has his little brother and his little sister, and he takes care of them, right? You start having that human connection. Mm. I think that's how we bring our cultures together, and that's how we become more unified and stronger. So we're trying to do that. I'm interested, I think, both in music and the kind of community activism you're talking about. It's kind of a... Um, you know, long, you're taking a long kind of view of it and not wanting to rush into things and, you know, really taking your time with your music and the way you're writing and things like that. Yep. I think, I think it's really great. It's a really interesting kind of approach and kind of flies in the face of what a lot of people want to do, you know, more and more now is to kind of like, I've got this idea, so I need to rush in and just get it done. Whereas I think, you know, it sounds like you're really wanting to plan out and make sure that the impact you have is going to, have as big an impact as possible. Yeah, I don't want it to be a short, short-term thing. It can't just be like, okay, let's try to put a Band-Aid on the issue or let's try to, there's attention right now, let's do something so we can be seen or something like that. It's more of how do we put, how do we make culture in Melbourne better, right? How do we make more events? How do we make it more, better just in terms of like living standards and stuff like that for mm. people in different communities that don't really get these things or don't have access to a gallery because it's normally been considered something for like posh people to do and stuff like that so these kids never think that they could do that right mm. how do we start changing that how do we equip so i'm not going to be here all the time stuff like right i might be gone like next year i might be in america or something i might be doing chasing my passion and stuff mm. like that right but if we start these events and make them ongoing i can then give that to young kids right they have a passion for that and they really want to do something like that and really love that right i can hand that to them and be like okay i started this for you right you guys learn how to do it Go, go wild with it. For the next 10 years, you can build a future with this and you can make it bigger and you can make it bigger than I ever would have thought it would have been. Mm-hmm. And when I come back, I can see that and you guys have something to be proud of and you're putting your city on, right? And then the whole city benefits from it. That's what we're trying to do. This is so exciting listening to you because, like, I, the same ideas, the same brainwaves are going through all of us, all these currents. We all want to rebuild our own culture mm-hmm. and we all want to take back our futures and we all want to start, like, actually putting our energy into, like, fruitful, prospering, like, projects. Yep. And this is where it begins. It begins in a conversation in a community radio station. This is, like, <laughs> yeah, this is it. 100%. Yeah. Mm. Go to blocks. I'm also really excited that you said you're going to, you know, spend years and years on your first record because that's what they say. They say your first record is 20 years in the making and then once it hits, the next one's got to be out in a year, you know. The the business model is so, you know, 
controlling that you got to make something so fast. You got to make that first one yeah. really rock. And, Especially, uh, yeah, yeah. It has to be something that can be listened to twenty years from now, where it's a proper representation of Titan, right? Of Titan that grew up in Melbourne, that grew mm. up with these issues, that grew up in this community. All of that has to be a proper representation of it. It can't just be rushed, regardless of how I feel or regardless of how hard it is as you know, as a struggling artist and stuff like that, right? You just want your art to be the best that it can be. You don't want to rush anything. You don't want to go, okay, all these people are releasing all these little tracks that took one hour for them to make and stuff like that, right? But those tracks have no substance, right? And I also feel like I have to make way more connections in terms of production, engineering and stuff, like knowledge, right, mm-hmm. that I don't have yet. So if I did have, if I make the, if I started like releasing my project now, right, I might just be messing it up because there's a lot that I don't know yet that could go and add on to that and make that message or the message I want to send so much, you know, more polarizing. Mm. Can I ask as well, as you say, like, it's not easy being an artist in Australia. Mm. Um, I don't think there's a huge amount of support that comes from government. You know, you're talking about getting things set up in your community. What to you, you know, at the moment, government are talking about spending $400 million on a youth prison in Altona. You know what I mean? I just want to know from you, a young artist growing up in this city, what could government do to help you, the one thing they could do to help make your, making your art, great art, a little easier? Bro, it's not even hard. Like, they're focusing on the wrong parts. They're focusing on putting putting all these guns with, like, police and making the police stronger for to fight 16-year-olds, like 14-year-olds, right? That's not where you get at these kids. You need to start focusing on youth programs. You need to start focusing on, like, courts and stuff like this. Find the people that are already in these communities doing the work because there's so many people that are in these communities, like, helping hoops and stuff like that, right? They go around with all these disadvantaged youth and stuff like that and they give them they help them with like free basketball training right and they offer them another way to go and a lot of these kids are in America now playing for like college college like level teams and stuff like that right find those people and help those people support what they're doing and make that bigger right because that's what you're really just really going to change the future it's not by saying okay we're just going to prepare for more kids to be wild we're going to make more prisons and further on that because that's just what, what kind of me- message does that send? It's saying, okay, we're going to give up, right? We expect you guys to get worse, and we expect more of you guys to come, and more of you troublemakers to come, and we're going to build prisons to account for that, right? Mm-hmm. No, nah, you need to go, okay, how do we stop this? Or how do we prevent um, kids getting into this type of life? And stuff like that? How do we give them the assistance they need? How do we, you know, give them someone to talk to, like, you know, someone to get the the anger within them, right, where they can finally feel like they're a part of the community, that uh, there's people that care about them, that um, if there's issues at home and stuff like that, right, they can have someone to speak to. They don't have to keep it all inside. Mm-hmm. Let's start working with communities because none of these people have come to our community and have a conversation with anyone in our community. I think that's very important to say, right? Mm-hmm. None of the youth have met any of these people making any of these comments. So they're coming from a place where they don't know anything. They just see maybe stats or something and they don't know what's behind it. They don't know the people behind it. They don't know who's taking action, what's effective, what's not effective. And their answer is, we need more money for the police. No, you don't. That's not what you need. You need to start caring more. You need to start really working instead of pretending you're working because you're not really working. And I think, unfortunately, unlike the kind of um, you know long-term plan that you're talking about, that politicians see things in a very short-term view and, you know, waiting for their election cycle. Yeah. And, you know, the news cycle is, is shorter and shorter. You know, we, um, 
would be great to see some politicians with a kind of vision of what you're talking about, where mm. you're looking b- behind the issues of what's happening in communities and behind the issues of what people actually need in society and not trying to just stifle their creativity and their movement. Yeah. And you're exactly right, Titan, that when people build a prison, all that means is that they've got to fill that prison yeah. to make the money worthwhile. So it's despicable that, that that is what they're planning to do with our taxpayer money. It kills me. 100%. Um, but unfortunately, it's been so good having you in the studio. Layla, you're a legend for bringing Titan in, introducing us yes. to his music. Oh, guys, I'm just bubbling with energy over here. This is sick. Yeah, it's really good. And uh, it's been a great show. Um, thanks for joining us this thanks morning. Thanks for the platform, guys. Thanks for everyone that's listening. Have a good day. Hmm. Um, so yeah, thank you. Uh, this has been Monday Breakfast on 3CR. Please stay on the air to listen to Women Online. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.